It's no accident that the car ramming took place. It's domestic terror. Very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group, excuse me, excuse me, I saw the same pictures as you did. I've never seen so much hatred in the eyes of my fellow human beings in my life. We have overcome a lot in our democracy. We've overcome McCarthyism, we've overcome segregation, and we're going to overcome this. And I think we are having a huge debate right now around what's the difference between free speech and hate speech. Welcome back to Overcoming Extremism. I'm Mike Signer. I was the mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia during the Unite the Right rally in August 2017. Overcoming Extremism is a journey into the heart of American democracy as we explore together how democracy can overcome extremism in a challenging new era. We are sitting down with folks who have dealt with extremism firsthand. Mayors, prosecutors, faith leaders, activists, journalists. Together, their stories provide important clues to how democracy can and must rise to this challenge. In this episode, we turn to another set of democratic institutions, faith-based organizations and alliances, organizations who decide to join forces We'll talk with Alvin Edwards, the founder of the Clergy Collective in Charlottesville, and Sarah Ruger, a leader at the Charles Koch Institute, stand together, a member of the Communities Overcoming Extremism Coalition. Though we often separate faith institutions from our theories of change in American democracy because of the long-standing separation of church and state that's in our Constitution, the plain fact is that faith institutions play a key role in many social justice strategies. Alvin Edwards is not only a former mayor of Charlottesville, he is the pastor of Charlottesville's largest African-American church, and he founded the Charlottesville Clergy Collective, which includes Charlottesville Synagogue, its Catholic church, its mosque, and other Christian institutions and it played a significant role in designing the community response to the alt-right invasions of 2017 and afterward. He has major insights into the differences between confrontation, reconciliation, and prayer, and offering folks options between them, and he understands what it is to be a leader in a time of community threat and trauma. I hope you find this conversation as rewarding as we did. Thanks for joining us. There are many ministers who are very involved with social justice and politics. There aren't that many who go on to be elected to office and be mayors, but that's what you did. That's true. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you what, know, that, that was interesting how that came about. I came here, became a part of the Alliance for Interfaith Ministries and 
And I just became more involved in the community and eventually got involved with the Democratic Party. And that kind of influenced me to go in there. Then once we got elected, then the mayor issue became important to me because I just did not see the progress that I had hoped to see. And so we, we worked together with others. When you were mayor during that tenure, did you have any public safety threats or anything like we saw, any, any disorder? Any, any, the the uh, biggest thing we dealt with were drugs. And we used to march on corners, especially where there was a strong presence of drugs. We'd go there. I remember, yes, we've had threats. I had some threats. I had some letters. I had concern more so when it, somebody had put out that they were after my children, too. But I had to talk wow. to my kids about that. That when they were coming home from school, if anybody approached you, didn't know, run straight to the nearest house, you know, and ask them to call the police. You know, by the grace of God, nobody ever came or did anything, but it, the word was on the street. And then one of my members who is streetwise put out, don't mess with the pastor. <laughs> <laughs> and believe me, I can promise you, every threat was silenced. Well, let's go to the year 2017 now, um, as events start gearing up mm-hmm. in Charlottesville. You helped found an organization called the Clergy Collective. Yes. Tell us about that. Well, started as a result of what happened in Charleston, South Carolina, when um, that young man killed all those people there. So I got a breakfast together, and we invited some people to come. And from there, those discussions progressed And we eventually became the Charlottesville Clergy Collective. It must be an incredible challenge to be a pillar of the community when the community is under an extremist assault. So how did Pastor Edwards handle that role and that responsibility? What was it like being somebody who so many people needed to rely on? One of the things about me is that I tend to be collaborative. I want to make a decision together. Even if it goes against what I want, I want people to vote their convictions and follow them. When the Ku Klux Klan came here, my goal was let's not go down there at all. Hmm. But some of the other clergy collective wanted to confront them. But I'm a firm believer that you don't have to deal with evil the same way, Hmm. that you can hit it from all sides. And I felt like that met the needs of the clergy collective. Because it had differences of opinion differences within of opinion, it. Differences of opinion, but also they could act and participate in whichever one they wanted to. We got to talking about an important event that occurred the morning before the Ku Klux Klan came to Charlottesville in July of 2017. This was a convening by the clergy collective where they gave folks who came three options to stay and pray, to go to an alternative slate of events that were called Unity Seville, or to go and directly confront the KKK. I asked Pastor Edwards which was the most effective, and he said it wasn't really about picking one or the other, it was about having options. I think it was all together because to say one was more effective without the other for me is unfair because you have really no way of measuring. Now, I would tell you the most effective group was the group who were praying. And it may have been 10 to 15 people there for that. You know, that would be my opinion because I believe where there's much prayer, there's much power. When there's little prayer, there's little power. There's no prayer, no power. And so I believe by them praying for us that that made it effective. And see, 
When you can't exercise your beliefs, then you start splintering people off. Because it was very calm. As I remember it, it was a very conscious choice that if you want to go down this path, literally follow this group. And that that room split into, I guess, three, as you're saying it. And it was very intentional and conscientious. Yes. And it was interesting how energized the ones who were going to confront that they wanted to do it. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it was like, no, I'm going to I'm going to exercise my voice and shout them down. There are lessons to be learned for any leader from this civic leader's role in a small community experiencing extremism. Listen to how he describes being a touchstone for so many in this traumatized community. Well, it puts you in the hot seat and almost in a position you never anticipated. I never thought. I mean, I do what I do because I care. Sometimes I wish I didn't, but but I do care. And I want to make sure that when I close my eyes, that they remembered that I tried to make a difference in the life of people in a positive way. I don't care if they remember whether they have a PhD. I don't care about that. And I always, I love this song that Mahalia Jackson would always sing. If I can help somebody as I pass along, if I can cheer somebody with the word or song, if I can show somebody they're traveling wrong, then my living shall not be in vain. My main goal is to be a servant to the people. It's not about the position. It's not about the titles. So since August 12th, have you seen a change in this community? Oh, I've seen a change. And what, what is it? It seems like it's more hopelessness. It seems like... People want to stay and keep blaming one or two people. And for me, if you live in this community, you're part of the problem of the community. And if the community has a problem, then you have a responsibility to work toward fixing it or solving it. And so I've seen a lot of meetings and I've seen some very positive things. And and I'm still optimistic, but I'm not one to hang around for a whole lot of arguing. I'm, I'll be 68 this year, Lord willing, in October. And I don't have the patience that I used to have for talking about things that's not leading to any positive change. If you want positive change, I'll be there to contribute my two cents. But I'm not hanging around for some stuff. You can't keep talking about it. I believe you have to practice that which you teach and preach. Or as B.B. King said, I want to live the life that I sing about in my song. I think you ought to want to live the life that you preach and teach and talk about in your life. And see, you can't do anything about anybody but you. And so how you respond and how you react is really what makes a difference. It begins with one of us. Because if one person can touch another person, that person touch another person, you've already touched two or three people. Then he talked about a recent interfaith gathering he convened. We had over 250 people from our churches or temples and other faith traditions had eight to a table and we talked. And we have two more to go this year. I mean, that was hopeful to see them come together, black and white to talk about the issues here, that if their leaders don't get together, we can't very well expect our members to get together. If they are fragmented, divided, hating on each other, what do you expect from your your membership, your congregations? And so there's something about the congregations that need to come together when the leaders come together. So that was one of the things. I then asked 
Pastor Edwards, the question we're asking everyone, was he optimistic or pessimistic about democracy's ability to handle extremism? What he said about love in particular might surprise you. I'm worried about, one, our educational system, that it's become a political football, and that it's not about teaching our children and raising up young adults to be good critical thinkers, but that we allow our party affiliations to determine what we're going to do. And that, that concerns me. What are you most hopeful about? I don't know if I'm, I'm not hopeful in our political situation. I'm hopeful that gatherings like the clergy collective could have an impact on this country. We have a lot of hate in our world, and it looks like evil to people. And as a person of faith and as a leader in the faith community, honestly, how do you counsel somebody faced with evil, faced with somebody who might want to kill them, might want them eliminated, to react with love? Well, it takes practice. It takes tolerance. It takes patience. It takes a lot of things. The late Ralph David Abernathy and I had a discussion about that because I asked him about, you know, what do you do when something, I mean, your family's threatened and you mean think I'm supposed to sit back and keep, I don't, I have a problem with that. But he told the story to me about a lady who called him and talked about how much she hated him. And so when she finished talking, he said, well, we need to have one more conversation. She said, what is it? And he kept it in her face about love. The more she tried to say she hated him, the more he kept saying he loved her. Wow. I haven't gotten there yet. I would be hard-pressed not to defend my family for someone who hated them. And I will love you even though you hate me. I can deal with that now. As long as you don't put your hand to him, I'm okay. <laughs> that gives to be another <laughs> That's issue. a different area. That's a different answer there. <laughs> you know, but you can talk to me. You can yell at me and say how much you hate me because of the color of my skin or whatever, but I am not going to stoop to your level. I mean, that is a radical point of view. Yep. And that flies in the face of a lot of where in our culture, our protest culture, our anger culture, we deal with the other side, especially one that offends us deeply. Yes. So do you feel like a radical? You don't look like a radical. You're sitting here with your nice sweater and your, (laughs) you know, and your spectacles. I think I can be, you know, about (laughs) some things, but... um, that's something I'm still growing in the area of. There, there's something that I just couldn't tolerate. I, I couldn't have been a slave. Hmm. I just couldn't have been. You couldn't hmm. be beating on me. Somebody was going to get hurt. But it don't be me either. So, Well, Pastor Alvin Edwards, I want to thank you for not just your leadership in the community, but this conversation has really focused on the role that faith institutions, the role they can play in rebuilding and connecting, not just individually, but collectively. It's part of our, our quest for answers as we take this journey together. Well, thank you for having me. Alvin Edwards is the former mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia, the pastor of First African Mount Zion Baptist Church, and the founder of the Charlottesville Clergy Collective. It has been surprising to some folks that this podcast includes a partnership between organizations like the Anti-Defamation League and the Ford Foundation and conservative organizations like the Charles Koch Institute and Defending Democracy Together. Sarah Ruger runs free expression programs at the Charles Koch Institute, 
which recently took on a new name, uh, Stand Together. Sarah and I have worked closely together on this project, and I was excited to interview her to understand why the Koch Institute has chosen to take on this issue of extremism and what it's like to work for an organization that's so frequently on the firing line. Along the way, you will hear about how coalitions of unlikely bedfellows come together on causes like overcoming extremism and what gives Sarah Ruger both hope and fear for how our democracy can take on this important work. I took this political economy class with a teacher who he really intensely used the Socratic method, so no one was allowed to make any kind of claim without you know, really defending it and backing it up. That professor turned out to be the person who, who saved my education. You know, he, there's a time in college where I was going to have to drop out. I just could not make ends meet. It was a stretch to get to college in the first place, and then I just could not pay the bills. And I went to him and said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to drop. And he said, please, just, just don't do it this week. Wow. I'll come back to you. And he came back and, and he had cobbled together just a series of kind of emergency institutional grants and scholarships and, and things to, to literally just make it possible to, to get the food meal plan and, and a roof over my head uh, for the rest of my college career. And I didn't know it at the time, but he was, um, he was a part of the Coke Network, uh, loosely speaking. And, and he knew I was interested in, in figuring out how to, how to make what, what was my experience not an exception, you know, something that was accessible to more people. And so he, um, he sent me to a summer seminar. This is how much of a geek I was in college. On a, a summer seminar on um, how to address issues of global poverty. So I spent my summer doing that. And um, Found out later it was a that was a Coke program, and so after I graduated college, I was recruited by uh, the group that put on that uh, global poverty summit, and and was uh, shortly after that recruited by the the Coke Foundation to build grants to universities and faculty like the one that I had so tremendously benefited from, and and I've, I've been there for a, a decade since. As a progressive Democrat, people often have been surprised to learn that I've been working with the Charles Koch Institute on communities overcoming extremism. And I usually answer that fighting extremism is going to create strange bedfellows, particularly in this very strange political time. So in Sarah's own words, why is the Charles Koch Institute joining this coalition? Yeah, well, there were, there were a lot of reasons. There was a lot of kind of growth over time that I think really made that decision be a, a very clear one for us that we needed to get, get involved with. I mean, it, you know, our overarching vision as a philanthropic community is for a world that makes it possible for everyone to rise, for everyone to achieve their, their full potential. That's where a lot of our work uh, breaking barriers to achieving that full potential comes in, whether that's the broken criminal justice system or, or the immigration system and, and the like. But education and self-discovery has always been a, a key part of that. Years ago, when we first got started on, on this work, um, it was largely focused on First Amendment issues in particular, free speech issues in particular, because we view that as a critical foundation for self-discovery, for knowledge and innovation in society, and the foundation upon which successful fights for social justice uh, are, are built. 
we've done a lot of work over the years to um, ensure free speech in in higher education, to support free speech in journalism and and in support of press freedom, because we think that's unfortunately under attack more than ever. But as we were doing that, you know, it became more and more clear to us that free speech is is critically necessary, but just not sufficient towards this larger positive vision of a culture where people work together to solve problems, where they work together to advance justice and equal rights, where we're able to discover the solutions to some of these these challenges. So we started investing in educational programs that actually teach students how to engage with difficult ideas or ideas with which they disagree. But even that, like that's a very long-term, long-term goal. Education's vitally important, but it takes generations to see the benefits of that. And around that time that we're realizing that, you know, Charlottesville happens. And that is just such a an incredible smack in the face, making clear the very real pain and harms of offensive expression and offensive ideas and it just demonstrated how how far we have to go as a society to create spaces where we can peacefully fight back against effectively against abhorrent ideas that that would hate or, or otherwise uh, people on the basis of race or gender or, or any factor we just knew at that point that we have no idea what to do but we had a, a responsibility to help figure it out and that what we needed to do to do that was enter opportunities to learn from people who had already been doing thinking on this, as well as with people who would challenge us. So, you know, what really attracted us to the the Communities Overcoming Extremism Project was really the opportunity to walk alongside people in the community and hear their needs and um, to partner with what the world would view as unlikely allies who I know uh, will and, and fortunately are challenging us um, and and pushing us to challenge our assumptions. And that's what it's going to take to ultimately add value on this problem. So let's be honest, in terms of public perception, the Koch Institute has what you might call a brand problem among many Americans, particularly on the left. I asked Sarah if she thought there were misconceptions and what they were. Yeah, no, that's a big question uh, and, a, and a tough one. I mean, th- there are many. <laughs> I think one of the biggest misconceptions is is that we represent a particular political party, that we're Republican. Our vision is very much one that should speak to everyone. Um, you know, this idea of empowering everyone to reach their full potential is just a, a fundamentally optimistic one about the potential of of humans, of individuals everywhere and their inherent dignity and and equality. And if that's anything, I suppose it's classical liberal, but um, it's certainly not something that's beholden to any one political party. I, I understand why that misconception exists, but you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that our work bringing together people across political divides on, on issues as far-ranging as foreign policy and immigration and criminal justice reform and, and free speech, and there are just countless examples to point to in there, is, is what's going to, to demonstrate over time that we are about building coalitions to do good in the world and, and not about any ideology or position. I, I know that there was a journey um, at the Charles Koch Institute. You spoke about it when you spoke at the leadership summit we did at Washington University in St. Louis last fall. And for those who weren't among the 150 people there, I was hoping you could revisit that journey for us. 
Yeah. So, you know, just just building off of the the kind of strategic evolution that we've gone through, you know, I think it's fair to say, you know, we were doing our own kind of inner soul searching. And, you know, I know I certainly have as we've rooted our work in this vision to help everyone rise uh, and and to empower everyone to, to achieve their full potential. We've really we've had a bit of a I think a, a reckoning is fair to say in looking at what best makes that possible. Uh, when are, are we as a philanthropic and, and advocacy community actually able to do that well? And where we've actually been able to, to have a positive impact um, is when uh, we'll unite with anyone to do good. Um, and even if that means reaching across and, and talking with people who the, the world would be surprised to find us talking to. Many people might be surprised by a particularly interesting story Sarah had about how the Koch Institute came to work with the former Obama White House aide and CNN commentator and noted very progressive leader Van Jones on his signature issue of criminal justice reform and how this is an example of how seeming antagonists can still work together to get things done. I remember years ago being at the summit of investors that back then we kept private. And Van Jones was actually in the group of protesters outside of the venue holding a sign and really, um, you know, implying that we, we shouldn't exist. We shouldn't be gathering. Wow. And I remember him coming to an event after that, an open one. And he grabbed the microphone uh, at the event before anybody else had a chance to ask questions. It was a criminal justice reform related event. And he asked us a tough question. You know, we responded to it. And then he was willing to have a conversation with us after the event to just dive into this issue where it turned out we had at the time, surprising amount of of agreement in terms of the injustices in our society. And, and he saw a role, a positive role for us to play in that advocacy and reform effort. And he'd been a champion on it for a long time. And, and that began, you know, a long-term partnership where, where he really pushed us. We were open to that, that conversation. And as a result, you know, years later, because it, it takes years building trust and working together um, to bring others into the movement, we see once in a generation federal criminal justice reform in the in the form of the First Step Act. So that is the kind of thing that right. is, is made possible by unlikely alliances. And that is what we want to do across all of the issues that we work on. Shift focus to extremist events. You've spoken about the role that the events in Charlottesville took or had for Charles Koch Institute deciding to to work on issues of extremism. We've seen even more mm-hmm. in the last year, really horrendous events. And how have those kind of resonated? What's your perception of the of the stakes of these issues and the work that the project is doing? Yeah, I, I'm ultimately optimistic. I'll state that up front, um, but I'm going to say something pessimistic for a second. Um, and it's just that, you know, I, we do see these violent acts increasing in, in number and increasing in severity. And I think that trend will continue before it gets better because I think they're a product of really seismic changes in our society that aren't going away anytime soon. You know, I think we're in a period of incredible change and dynamism post-internet era, our institutions are changing dramatically, you know, how right. our, our social media, how how knowledge flows through society and, and the role that traditional media has to play in that. I mean, it, everything we knew is, is different uh, and we don't know what it's going to be in the future. And meanwhile, 
We're about we're about to become a majority minority country for the first time, which is incredibly exciting, but also means a lot more change. And if there's anything we know about humans, when we're confronted with the new and the different, we react with fear as we move away from it. And, and if confronted with it directly, unfortunately, sometimes we, we violently react to it. I think those aren't issues that are going away anytime soon. Um, and I think it just adds to the vital importance of this this project we've undertaken, not just because of the tools it will surface to to keep us safe um, and to and to prevent the violent acts that, that can manifest because of this fear, but I think most importantly because it will surface the remaining questions that we need to help solve over the long term and it will bring together people across fields who wouldn't otherwise be talking with each other, whether it's scholars working on issues uh, with community leaders, with technologists who can learn from each other about what's going to be most effective to address these problems. So the capacity building um, that you're making possible through this project is really what I think is going to solve these issues long term. Well, Sarah Ruger of Stand Together and the Charles Koch Institute and a a leading member of the alliance behind communities overcoming extremism, want to thank you for taking some time with us today and sharing your your story and your Thank you ideas. so much, Mike. Yeah, it's an honor to be a part of this. Sarah Ruger directs free expression at the Charles Koch Institute and Stand Together. You've been listening to Overcoming Extremism. Overcoming Extremism's partners include the Anti-Defamation League, the Fetzer Institute, the Charles Koch Institute, the Ford Foundation, Lowell and Eileen Aptman through the Soros Fund Charitable Foundation, the John Pritzker Foundation, Comcast, NBC Universal, Democracy Fund, New America, Georgetown University's Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, the Aspen Institute's Justice and Society Program, and Defending Democracy Together. Overcoming Extremism was produced in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our producer is Elliot Majerzik. The opening theme was created by Poddington Bear, and Elliot composed and produced the musical interludes and the closing music. I'm Mike Signer. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.